If you've got your Bibles, go to Joshua chapter 7. That's where we're going to be. We've been studying Joshua. Uh, and I want to make a couple of, say a couple of things before um, we get into this while you're turning there. One, this week um, on Tuesday, Lord willing, I am supposed to uh, shoot a video that is an update of where we are on the campaign. So we did a, uh, made an appeal for a capital campaign back in, uh, for the month of August, and that has kind of rolled in over the last couple of months, and we're um, getting ready to let you know where we are on that. Uh, but I also want to say that if you, if you haven't participated, if that's something you haven't joined in, it's, it's not too late. We, we still want you to, to do that. And uh, maybe you just forgot about it or just didn't know if it was the right time, and maybe the Lord's made that clear to you. And so we'd love for you to join in on that. You can do that online. Um, we've still got the... Uh, pledge cards out here in the foyer, and so you can grab one of those if you haven't done it. But we'll update you this week. So if you get an email uh, from me, instead of just, you know, archiving it or deleting it or whatever you do, uh, I just wanted to let you know it's coming. So you don't have to watch it if you don't want, but uh, it has that information. Secondly, and this is just by way of I've been gone for the last couple of weeks, but I was over in uh, Jordan and Israel. And I say all this to say just that it was pretty cool over in Jordan uh, getting to stand on one side of the Jordan and then on the other side of the Jordan have, having been studying Joshua and realizing, yeah, this is a real place. I mean, these things really happen at a real place and it was encouraging to be reminded this isn't just words on a page. This is in, the inspired Word of God and the history of God's people. And those spots are still there. And uh, if you ever get a chance to go do that, I would love for you, I'd love to take you over there. Um, so, no, I mean, not today, but someday uh, in the future. All right. So, uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 7. What, it's a hard chapter. And um, there's some things about this chapter that make us uncomfortable. And and, and that's the intention of the, of the writer. He wants us to be uncomfortable. And so I, I say that to say we're going to walk through these verses in chapter 7. But before we do that, I want to pray because I want the, the Lord to help us to hear and to see what he'd have for us to hear and see. So if you'd bow with me, Father, help us this morning. We, we want to hear from your word and we confess there are things that we don't even know we're going to read this morning. Um, that are going to be hard to hear and to make sense of. And um, so, Father, help us. And I, I pray that the, for the words that I say, that all the things I say that would accord with your word, that they're helpful in explaining it and understanding it, that, that we'd hear those. And, and everything else, I pray that it would burn away um, and be forgotten forever. And so, Father, that's, that's how I pray. And I do this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, so Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, kind of tell you where we are in Joshua. Um, the truth is, in the story, we're not very far. We're seven chapters in, uh, but the story in a nutshell is this. The, uh, the Israelites have ended their 40 years of wandering. Moses has died. Joshua is now the leader, and he's leading 
the generation of people that grew up in the wilderness. All their parents have been left behind, and so they crossed the Jordan River, as God promised, into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. The first place they go is a place called Jericho. In over about two chapters, three chapters, four chapters, we get the Jericho story, and uh, they have a great victory at Jericho. They march around the city, and God's the great victor. And uh, without lifting a finger. And so now we get to chapter 7 and we find out we're on the second step now into the promised land. If the first step was Jericho, the city of Ai or Ai is the second step and that's where it picks up. Now, look with me, chapter 7, verse 1, this is how it begins. But the people of Israel, now I just need to stop right there for one second and remind you, what has come before this? So, when you, when you see a chapter open up with a contrastive conjunction, all right, you, you want to know, okay, what are we contrasting? What, what's the change in mood here? Well, the last verse of chapter 6 reads this, and this is sort of a uh, the, the victory at Jericho and the, uh, the, the Israelites and the promised land. And it says this, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. And, and I mean, and it's great. You're like, oh, yeah. We've been waiting for this for 40 years. I mean, I've read Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. I'd read all that to get here. Here we are. And the Lord's with them, and they're walking with the Lord. And all the people are hearing about God's people having come into the land. And you're, and you're getting ready as the reader to kind of settle in and go, man, this is great. I, I can't wait. I mean, this is so exciting. And then chapter 7 opens up with this contrast. Well, that's all well and good, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And all of a sudden, the mood has changed. He's promised in chapter 1, you remember, I'll not leave Joshua, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Where you go, I'll be there. And here, the presence of God is, is threatened, and it's threatened because of this breach of faith. Notice it's, it's the people of Israel who have broken faith. The people of Israel have broken faith. So, so you see this. And then it says, hey, but Achan, he's identified as the criminal. But the whole nation's on the hook. And the Lord's anger burned against them. And, and, so, and you're meant to feel this tension. And you're meant to say, well, wait a minute. Well, why is all of Israel on the hook? If God knows that Achan is the guy who committed the, the breach, who, who, who 
who, who this act against God. Why, why, why everybody being blamed? And, and you're meant to feel that. You're meant to say, wait a minute, what, what, what's going on here? Well, to help you understand, so to, so to remind you, last week, Chad talked about the devoted things, the things that are set apart for destruction or the things that are set apart as sacred property. It belongs to the Lord. It, it, it makes the nation of Israel different from every other nation in the world. They were not meant to profit personally from these attacks, from this conquest. This is God's victory. He's the victor. And so he's setting apart permanently these things as belonging to God, and this is part of God's rules of engagement. So we speak about things, doing things according to God's will, but we also see that there is a way in which God wants us to do things. And so God outlined what was to be destroyed and what was to go into the temple treasury. And in chapter 6, verse 18, he makes clear, don't take anything as a spoil of war. And if you do, destruction and trouble is going to come on the camp. But Achan has taken some of the devoted things and trouble is coming. In fact, later the, in the Chronicles, much later when that, that's written, the Chronicler as he's going through the genealogy, he's going to mention Achan, but he's going to change his name just a little bit to a core, which means trouble. His name gets changed in history. He's a troublemaker. He's a trouble. He brings trouble. Now, one last thing about verse 1, and we've got to move on. But verse 1, let, let me say it this way. Verse 1 is meant for the reader. Joshua doesn't know this information. Let's put it this way. Have you ever seen a TV show or a movie? And the opening scene, you clearly know, hey, I have no idea what's going on because the opening scene happens somewhere in the middle or the end of the episode. And then the scene ends and the screen goes black and then you have this 48 hours earlier. And then they start the story, right? Okay. That's kind of what verse 1 is. And verse 2 48 hours earlier, now the story starts. He's going to tell us how we get there. Look at verse 2. Joshua sent some men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go and spy out the land. And the men went and spied out Ai. So, Jericho, we have the victory. Step 2, we're going to go to Ai. He sends some spies. They go there. Eyes where they're headed. Incidentally, I mean something like a heap of ruins or a pile of stones. And it's as if the narrator is foreshadowing something for us here. Verse 3, and, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So, so you... They come back and they're like, hey, look, we're, we're not, in, this isn't Dallas. I mean, it's not, Jer it's, it's like Chapel Hill. We don't need to send everybody there. They don't even have a Walmart, all right? So, and it may not even be two, 3,000 people. It could, it could be the way that it's written, it, you know, it's talking about a couple hundred people. We don't need that many people. Verse 4, so about 3,000 men went up from there, from, from the people, and they fled they fled. They ran away from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, 
and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people, the people of Israel, melted and became as water. Now, now get this, the Jericho, the battle of Jericho, Israel doesn't lose a man. And the people of Jericho, it's their hearts that melted. Here at I, 36 men killed immediately. Then everybody's running for their life. And their hearts are melting now. And you think, what in the world just happened? Well, that's what the text is telling us. And, and that's why it begins the way it does in verse 1. It, it's that Israel's routed. They're struck to the core of their being because God's anger burned against them. That's the reason. And the details of, of why God's angry is coming, but, but it's important for the writer. I mean, the, the writer of Joshua, Joshua, he wants us to know why Israel's defeated. Why, why are they defeated? Let me give you an illustration. It, it, the illustration suffers a little bit, but I'm, but I'm hoping that it helps in understanding what the author's telling us about why they got defeated. And to, and to give that illustration... I want to talk about the Dallas Cowboys. No, I'm not hating. I'm preaching in my cowboy socks here, all right? So I'm ready for the game today. But the Dallas Cowboys are kind of like Israel. I mean, they've had a few big wins over the years. They've had some of the greatest players ever. The most valuable sports franchise on the planet they have all the potential in the world. And if you can count on anything, you can count on this. The Dallas Cowboys are going to disappoint you. <laughs> Just are. My son has lived his whole life. He's seen him win one playoff game for crying out loud. Maybe two, I don't know. So they blow it, and when they blow it, maybe they'll do it today. I don't know. The Monday morning sports talk radio, I mean, they dissect every possible reason. They'll say, well, it was the offense, or, or it was the defense, or, or it was the play calling, or, or the coach, or whatever it is. And, and, and we have this need, right? We, we all have this need to point to something. If we'd have done this differently... Maybe we would have had a different outcome. But the problem is something much deeper. It's a problem at the core. And so our tendency is to look at this passage today, and we say, okay, well, Joshua, let's see, what, what went wrong? You got routed at I, let's see what went wrong. So, so maybe, um, you know, so you sent the spies to I. Well, maybe you shouldn't have done that. I mean, maybe that was the problem. We don't see in the text that God told you to do that, so maybe you shouldn't have done it. That's the problem. Or, 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 or presumption is the problem. You know, just this overconfidence is what got them. They didn't send enough men. They got cocky or you know, maybe they forgot to take the Ark of the Covenant with them. Or maybe, maybe, maybe they forgot to pray. And so we want to look for the reason. Okay, well, what's the reason and let's fix it. And, and I want to say this. It's possible that all those things or any of those things are true, but here's the deal. That's not what the text is concerned with. 
Verse 1, we're given the reason they got defeated. And it was because God's anger burned against them. In fact, the chapter literally begins, literally. But the sons of Israel were unfaithful with unfaithfulness concerning what was set apart for the Lord. They were unfaithful with unfaithfulness. We can put it another way. Let's flip it upside down and, and, and call it another thing. It's called sin. And to make sure we understand what sin is, let's define it this way. It's actions, any actions that you would take, a man or a woman or a group of people. Actions in which humans rebel against God, miss the purpose for their life, and surrender to the power of evil rather than to God. And that's the problem. It's a sin problem. It's a rebellion problem. It's not an I-A-I problem. It's not a strategy problem. It's sin. And the Israelites, as it turns out, they brought sin with them into the promised land. They didn't leave it on the other side of the Jordan. It wasn't eradicated as they walked through the waters of the Jordan. Which means this. They have a problem beyond what they can solve on their own. They have a huge problem. Just to note, really, about the honesty of Scripture, it's refreshing. I mean, so what's being described here in these first verses is a failure. It's a failed military campaign, failed leadership, failure of an individual. We're barely two steps into the promised land with this story that Joshua's telling and Israel has already stumbled. And one of the things you see about this is that this story that's being told is not a new story. It's an old story. It's a very old, old story with an old, old pattern. It's so two things I'd say about it this morning. It reminds us we, we've got to We've got to be tending the, the fire the, of, of our faith. I mean, if we don't tend to it, just like any fire, the, the flames go out, the, the wood goes cold. This is a people that had grown up in the wilderness and witnessed firsthand the consequence of their parents' unfaithfulness. And this contrastive conjunction at the beginning of chapter 7 isn't something anybody wanted. I mean, if we know anything about human nature, one of the things we can imagine is you have a generation of people that spoke with a confidence that goes something like this. Well, we're not going to make the same mistakes our parents did. I mean, we're not going to blow it like they did. I think, you know, surely they would have been sure of themselves. We can do this. We're ready. Show us the way. In fact, the end of chapter 1, you have part of the tribes. They're, 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 you hear the words almost like a song. All you commanded us, we'll do. Where you send us, we'll go. 
We have a, we have a faith that needs tending. You can't just ride this deal. We've got to grow in our faith and encourage each other in faith and build up each other's faith and fight for faith. And secondly, the chapter reminds us two steps into the promised land that the future of Israel is absolutely and completely dependent on the grace of God. Look at verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. It's a picture of, of mourning, of, of grief taking place. And then Joshua said, it's his prayer, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the, the Jordan at all? Why have you brought us here? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To, to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Would that we had been content. It's interesting. After the crossing of Jordan and also after the crossing of the Red Sea, the people of God fail a test of obedience. And, it, and the response is something like this. So, okay, God, being delivered or, or this divine intervention that you, dis, you, you bestowed upon us, it came with a testing that was too great. In other words, the power of God in their life, the power of God that comes and intervenes and exerts itself and leads them, this power of God on their lives then comes with this opportunity for them to respond to God with their lives. It's called obedience. And when they failed, the response is that, well, we were content not to know God's power. We were better off before this happened. We were content and we didn't know it. It's like saying the ignorance of God's power was better than the call to obedience in response to God's power. Verse 8, O Lord... What can I say when Israel's turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Listen, if you're going to appeal to God on anything, that's the way to appeal, by the way. Joshua doesn't know verse 1 yet, remember? He doesn't know why we've, we lost. We, Jericho went so great. What happened at I? Did you bring us out here to fail? What about your name, God? That's what he's saying. But underneath the statement is sort of this fundamental problem. It's this problem of, of perspective. And, 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 it, and it runs the, against the grain of how we naturally think about God's holiness and our sanctification. And God's not willing 
to compromise his holiness or the sanctification, the, the spiritual growth and cleansing of his people, even if it means his reputation's damaged in the process. And I know this because the ministry of Jesus, the life, the death, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection, it's referred to as the humiliation. The reputation temporarily sacrificed for the holiness of God's people. Now, if you could just dial in with me for one moment. I, I, want, I feel like I need to explain something here so that we can understand what this passage is about. And, and that is, we need to consider how big of a deal the holiness of God is. And this passage helps bring God's holiness into clear view. And, and it starts this way. Sin is a big deal. It's a pollution. It's a poison. We are meant to be shaken out of our slumber this morning about sin. Here's a question, an honest question, but I, please, please do not answer out loud back to me, all right? How much sin is it okay for you to have in your life? What, what's your threshold of, of sin? Such a convicting question, right? Let me turn it up for a minute. At what point are you convicted? I mean, at what level of sin in your life do you finally become uncomfortable? How much sin can you reasonably be comfortable with in your life? Let's put it another way. How, how much sin do you think you're able to manage in your life without it becoming a problem? My experience, personally, pastorally, we're not too much bothered by sin until it becomes a crisis. I, I see it all the time. Things just got out of control in my life, or I never meant this to happen. And give you, when um, my kids were little, we lived in uh, Kansas, and our house in Kansas had a basement. And the kids would play in the basement, and, and they would pretend. My two oldest kids, uh, Maggie and Jay, they were young elementary school age. Catherine was just a little baby. And, um, but they would go down into the basement. We'd be upstairs, and they'd be down in the basement, and they would play this thing. I don't even know what it meant. They called it team wrestling team, okay? Don't even know what that means. But they'd put towels on, like, with capes and stuff, and they'd play. And it always started out fun. I mean, they didn't wrestle because they were mad at each other or they wanted to hurt each other. But here's the deal. 
team wrestling team only ever ended in one of two ways. The hospital or a spanking. <laughs> and yes, I spanked my children. You're welcome. I mean, they never played for like 30 minutes, you know. It was like, that was fun. Let's hug it out and go eat ice cream. That never happened. Nope, it's over when someone gets hurt or cries or something's broken. Now everybody has to go to their room and wait for dad to come talk to them. It's the way it is. Listen, sin never quits. The enemy never quits. Sin doesn't just let you play with it for a while and then go eat ice cream. Whatever pleasure or comfort or satisfaction or hope or solution that sin offers you, here's what you need to know. It's lying. Sin's only purpose in your life is to destroy you, to absolutely corrupt you to your very soul. Not just you, but your family and your marriage and your relationships and your work and your church, everything. It's an insatiable plague. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, sin is what death uses to sting you, to infect you with death. So let me ask you again, how much sin is it okay for you to have in your life? This is what the passage is about. And it's startling and terribly uncomfortable. I know it is. But that's just half the equation. It's the gravity of sin. Well, we don't take it seriously enough. But the other half is God's holiness. And we tend to sanitize the white, hot, blazing holiness of the God who is a consuming fire. And every single time someone in Scripture catches a, a glimpse of the holiness of God, you're in the, and the veil drops for just a, a moment, every single time the witness to it is undone. Every time. Every time you see the holiness of God is greater than we can fathom. It's more serious and more devastating and more demanding. So this is what's going on. This is what the passage is about. The seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. And there's not a single person here this morning including me, that doesn't need to be reminded of this. And by God's grace and the power of His Spirit this morning, we, we need a reset in our, in our soul and have our eyes awakened. Oh, oh, no, that's not okay for me in my life. Let's pick up in verse 10. The, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. 
They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, and they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. They've taken what's mine. Therefore, the people of God cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they've become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the, the, the devoted things from among you. Well, we don't like verse 12 very much, do we? I mean, it irritates our sensibilities, our idea about what's fair. What, why all of Israel? I mean, all of Israel's bearing the consequences of the sin of this one man? Well, in the context, holiness it demands absolute perfection, absolute holiness. At this point, our minds, maybe, they drift back to the story of Adam and Eve. I think the author means for us to. Verse 13, get up, consecrate the people and say, so sanctify them. We've got to have a cleansing here. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. The Lord knows who has taken the devoted things. He knows who the stealer and the liar and the hider is. But he doesn't give that information to Joshua. He's going to leave that discovery to Joshua. He's going to make him investigate it. An investigation meant to put all of the people of Israel on edge. Listen to 14. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Here's what's interesting. Achan is a regular guy. I mean, here's what happens. God shows up and says, hey, there's, there's sense. Somebody did this. And you don't see all those people going, oh, well, we know who did it. Achan. That guy's been shady since before we crossed the Jordan. Nobody, nobody points a finger at Achan. Just regular guy or gal, just like you, just like me. Verse 16, so Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. The, the author is laboring through this. You want him to speed up. You want him to get to the end. You know the terrible end that's coming. And he brought near the clans of Judah 
and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near the household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. And then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. And give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. It's such an interesting verse, isn't it? Achan's about to confess. And notice, Joshua is describing this confession as an act of worship, of giving glory and giving praise I mean, we don't usually think of confession that way. It's this bitter pill to swallow or this torture to endure. And look, this is, this is going to end badly for Achan, okay? But I think verses 20 and 21, I mean, there's this relief. There's this peace. I mean, imagine the agony of Achan and his family up to this point. So verse 20, Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. So Achan views his sin rightly. He sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, willfully, rebelliously, fully knowing the consequences. He knew the consequences from chapter 6, verse 18. You take what was devoted to the Lord, you bring it to the camp as it's your own, you hide it, you bring destruction upon yourself in the camp. He knew. It's no accident. And likely he drug his family into the conspiracy along with him. Now, verse 21, listen to this. He's going to tell you what he did. When I saw, you could circle that. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, from Babylon, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted or desired, you could circle that word, Desired them, I coveted them, and took them. You could circle that word. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Chapter 21, I mean, verse 21, chapter 7. From temptation to sin. So Joshua, in his late 80s now, maybe, Achan asks him, uh, he, he takes Achan, asks him to confess. Achan's confession straightforward. It's accurate. He's honest. He's, he's right in saying that he sinned against the Lord. And then he even gives the details of what he took and how it was, it was hidden. We don't know if there's any remorse or not. We're not able to pick that up. But what we do get is we get a template for sin. I saw I coveted, I took. Interestingly enough, 
There is another verse in the Bible that uses those same three verbs. I saw, I coveted, I took. And you would find that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, coveted, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. James, he describes the process this way. But each person is tempted when he is lured or enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. John writes in 1 John, For all that is in the world... The desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but from the world. Here's the thing. You, you already know that verse. You've already experienced all those feelings. You've lived it. We all have. You know, the old saying, you can't keep the bird from flying over your head, but you don't have to let it build a nest. Aiken allowed it to build a nest. He took the robe from Babylon, the 200 shekels, and the gold. Something in Aiken caused him to see it and then take a second look. He knew he wasn't supposed to take it. Yet he esteemed his own glory above that of God. It is clear that Achan knew it was wrong from the fact that he buried it in his tent. I mean, he was never even going to be able to... What was he going to, where was he going to spend it? Sin has a way of corrupting our capacity to comprehend the consequence. That's why the writer of the psalm in 119, verse 36, incline my heart, he prays. God, incline my heart to your testimonies, to, to, to your word, and not to my selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. The psalmist knew it. Well, verse 22, so Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. Behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath, just exactly as he said it would be. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Accor. The text is making sure we don't hurry past this, right? The valley of Accor means trouble. 
sounds like Achan. It's meant to. I told you in First Chronicles when it's written about in the future. The chronicler will change his name to trouble. Verse 25, and Joshua said, did, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. And they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. What was meant to be devoted to destruction is now destroyed. And along with it, judgment is executed on Achan for the sinful act of rebellion against God that threatened the whole nation. And it's a severity of punishment that likely disturbs some of us. It's startling. Why, why is the punishment so severe? I mean, why, why is it so overwhelming? Well, it's meant to startle us. Just like it was meant to startle Israel. Two steps into the promised land and they'd lost sight of the holiness of God. And the penalty is so severe because the sin is so serious. And our problem is we who are sinners, and because of that, we don't think breaking God's covenant is that big a deal. And we don't know how to comprehend the holiness of God. We can't really understand God's wrath because sin doesn't bother us. Verse 26, and they raised over him a heap of stones that remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Accor. So they make a monument, a, a memorial, and it's the second memorial in Joshua, a second pile of stones. The first is a memorial to God's power. This is a memorial to our sinfulness. Now, next week, we get the AII the redo, we'll get to that. But I want you to know chapter 7 here in Joshua, kind of, it has a, later on in Scripture, turns out there's like a director's cut. This on the thing's driving me crazy. <laughs> it, there's more to the story. We, we, we didn't know it yet, and it'll be four or 500 years into the future that we see sin's not the last word, death's not the last word, judgment's not the last word, grace is and life is, that's the last word. And listen, let me just say, if you're convicted this morning, great. You're in good company. Let your conviction lead to confession. Ask the Lord to stir your affections for his holiness. So God's desire this morning through hearing the word is not that you'd leave here in despair or crush you beyond healing or send you home this morning without hope. God desires to draw you near and forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so four or five hundred years from this episode, through the voice of Hosea, God will finish the story of the Valley of Accor. In fact, in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, the title in that section in my Bible says, The Lord's mercy on Israel 
And Hosea has been prophesying that Assyria is going to come, wipe out the north, and they'll be exiled, but that one day God, he'll bring them back. And he says it this way, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, God says, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. God sent his son into the world to save sinners. That's what Paul writes to Timothy, and then he goes on to say, and I am the biggest of all the sinners. And the way we're saved is that Jesus came in the flesh. The eternal son of God stepped into humanity, took on humanity, and he lived a perfect life of holiness we could never live. And then he died the humiliating, cursed death on a cross that we deserve. The Bible says he became our sin. And not only that, he took to himself the wrath of God, the burning anger of God. He took that upon himself. He drank the cup of wrath to its dregs. He endured the burning anger of God in our place. He died our death. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. He conquered death, ushered in new life in the valley of trouble because of Jesus and through Jesus becomes the door of hope. So have you ever walked through the door of hope? If you haven't, you can do that this morning. I don't, don't leave here without doing that. Say, I know I'm a sinner. I know I am. And then for some reason today, I'm bothered by that sin. Well, you can confess that this morning. You can turn to Jesus as your Savior. You don't have to endure the burning anger of God. He already did. And He turns and offers you the door of hope. Step into his grace and his mercy this morning. If you find yourself convicted this morning, don't leave without a time of confession. Don't resist the Spirit as He moves. Father, pray You'd be with us this morning. Do what only You can do in our hearts and our minds. Awaken in us an affection for Your beauty and Your holiness and Your and your wonder, and your power. And Father, would you convict us this morning of the sin and the things we've become numb to in our life. We don't want to be numb to that anymore. And so, Father, we ask this the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. If